Hello and welcome to another episode of Almost Healthy. Emily, how are you? I'm excited to be back. Sam, how are you? Just live, laugh, love. (laughs) It's so funny because we meant to record quite a while earlier. Um, We were going to record over winter break. We had several business meetings and power lunches about it. (laughs) Oh, yeah. And then we like went to Boston together, which was so fun. And we took notes about like places we're going to go take um, reels with. We're we're not a TikTok crew yet, but we're going to do Instagram reels. And Sam has started her own yoga Instagram. She's now an influencer. So go follow that. Um, it's yoga with Sam dot B, uh, underscores between all of the words. Um, one of my reels got like 5,000 views, which is kind of crazy. Yes. But your tips are actually really good. Like as a novice of yoga, who's only recently started to practice regularly, Sam's tips are things that yoga teachers don't usually talk about in class and they're like key to actually moving on from beginner to intermediate so I love them and I will continue to post them on my Instagram story yeah I just wanted a platform where I could talk about stuff that doesn't necessarily fit into a yoga class um and I'm also just like a really big fan of equitable access to yoga it's why I teach at the rec center instead of some like bougie um studio is because I think it's so cool that like anyone from the community and anyone in UMass can take classes there and it's so affordable as opposed to like $20 classes where everyone's wearing Lululemon and has ridiculous bags and it's aimed at like rich white moms yeah and that's that's the studio I came from and I love it Like, it's a wonderful studio, but it's not accessible for a lot of people. Emily, what is the topic of today's podcast? So this is going to be our first episode of a two-parter on bloating. Um, This this episode, we're going to talk specifically about chronic bloating, Um, And then the next episode, we're going to talk about, like, what happens when you overeat and you're in a lot of discomfort. How can you remedy that? And so how this all got started was I sent a video to Sam of this person who was um, trying to normalize bloat by showing their body before and after they eat, which, like, we love. Like, we support, um, you know, changing bodies and we understand that, like, the way you wake up is not going to be the way you go to bed because that's life. Um, there's food in there. There's gas, like water, organs, like, you know, changing bodies throughout the day is totally normal. However, the amount of bloating this particular person had reminded me a lot of my friends who go through chronic bloating. And so I sent it over to Sam and I was like, as someone who has way more experience and has lived through chronic bloating, do you think this might look like chronic bloating? Uh, Yeah. So when I saw the video, she was, her abdomen was really distended, Um, you know, once in a while, totally normal. If that's your reality every day, though, I imagine that it's very uncomfortable and can even like have lifestyle implications. Um you know, from 
getting your pants to fit to feeling comfortable. Um, and that is kind of what Emily and I wanted to talk about today is you don't have to accept that level of bloating. Um, like there are things you can do and we just want to like give people the tools to empower them to, um, take control of their bloating and not feel like it's just something they have to accept. Right. And I think like we, uh, we, like Sam and I do not know if that woman in the video was in pain. If she wasn't in pain and that's just how her body works, like that's great for her. And so we wanted to, you know, talk a little bit about our experience with bloat, Sam's experience, um, like treating bloat and what we've kind of gleaned from scientific studies and just go into that. So a little bit of context on my personal experience with bloating. Um, since basically I was born, I had hot girl stomach issues. Uh, and this kind of came to a head in senior year of high school through like freshman and sophomore year of college. Um, and there would be times where I just was in so much distress that like I was stuck in bed and all I could do was just like stand still and wait for it to go away. And that really sucked. I just want to be able to share all of those tools with other people because I think if I had had these tools when it all started, like, I don't think it would have gotten to the severity it was. And, you know, it was, it was needless suffering at the end of the day. And like, that sucks. Right. Okay. So as the medical professional, or we are not doctors, <laughs> medical but as, unprofessional. as close to, uh, as the person who is on the track to becoming a medical pr- professional. That gives me absolutely no accreditation. <laughs> That's the equivalent of saying aspiring billionaire. <laughs> all right, all right, all right, Sarah, Sarah, Sarah. That's my hot take with pre-med. Sometimes they'll like drop it as if it's something to be impressed by. <laughs> It's like, dude, you have not gone to med school. Like, stop. Um, okay, so Sam, how, I think you say it the best, how would you define what bloat is? So bloating, there's kind of two main causes. One, talking, eating. Normally we're swallowing air and that accumulates in the GI tract. Some people accumulate more than others. Some people unintentionally swallow air. Some people swallow air as like a coping mechanism or to help them burp. I actually do that. And then the second way that gas accumulates is through the fermentation of foods like fiber by the microbes in your GI tract. When they're eating that fiber, they produce gases. Gas takes up space, which causes you to have that bloating sensation. I think a misconception I had about bloating until Sam and I started talking about it was that you can bloat from just eating high fiber foods like vegetables and fruits and things we would normally consider part of a balanced diet, um, which I think is really key when talking about this and like being kind to yourself. Yeah, like you can be healthy and have bloating. Like it's not a personal failing. Right. They're not like mutually exclusive. Yeah, you're Um, not bloated because you're eating poorly. Sometimes you might be bloated and, like, having eaten a lot of fast food. Um, But you can also eat a salad and then have a stomach the size of a watermelon. Right. So bloating is universal, right? We should not be beating ourselves up because of bloating, which we will get to more in a little while. 
The other thing that I also thought was super interesting, and we'll dig into this, is if you're taking specific quote-unquote diet foods, so um, like a lot of sugar-free um, substances can also cause bloating. Yeah, so sugar, alcohols, um, polyols are known to cause bloating. They're actually uh, one of the food groups listed in the low FODMAP diet. Which avoid. we'll get to in a moment. And then also low-carb. Um, the way they'll make foods low-carb is by adding things like oat bran to it. And that doesn't really give you any calories, but it does bulk up your stool, and it's high in fiber. Um, and if you have the right microbes, like, they'll break it down. We do like fiber. We are a pro-vegetable, pro-fiber <laughs> podcast. So, like, please don't think that just because we're going to talk about um, some sort of bloating or elimination diet that we think like you should stop eating all vegetables and fruits. We are actually a keto diet <laughs> podcast. I, this morning I woke up and I ate three raw livers and then a block of cheese and I chased it all down with a dozen scrambled eggs raw. That sounds like me. I like had like a stick of melted butter. <laughs> Um, and then, like, an entire avocado. You good? I just love our keto satire. I know. Sam and I regularly send each other Instagram reels on keto. Not to say that, like, keto can't be done in a more healthful way. Um, but there's no reason to cut out, like, high-fiber fruits and vegetables or beans for like an extended period of time unless you know it's medically advised people who are doing the keto diet to lose weight I don't think their doctors are saying that right like there are very specific reasons to go on a keto diet that doesn't mean one it's going to work for you and two doesn't mean like it's a weight loss program yeah and also fun fact you can lose weight by cutting out major food groups in any combination that's literally the entire diet industry. It's just, what can we cut out this year? Orange foods are out. <laughs> Throw away your oranges, carrots, and bell peppers. <laughs> Orange foods make you fat. <laughs> Beta carotene induces gene expression for the fat gene. I don't know what beta carotene well, is. So... <laughs> Well, that's how they get you, is they throw science words in, um, and if you don't know what those science words mean, you go, yeah, yeah, genes, those, I have those. <laughs> I, don't, I don't want to express the fat gene, that sounds bad. Okay, all right, you win, fair, fair. Um, cough, cough, Dr. Oz. That's actually valid. going to go a little bit more into what like what you can do to actually help reduce bloating and it's specifically target the cause of bloating right that's a big part of it because then you can just sort of manage your lifestyle around it um, and before we do just two disclaimers one we are not doctors the highest medical certification I have is my wilderness first aid <laughs> <laughs> If your 
dealing with chronic GI symptoms, please go to your doctor because it could be something more serious than just being gassy. Also, trigger warning, um, if you have an ED, if you would have an ED, you would know what that stands for, um, I feel like. An ed, if you will. Just know we will be talking about these diets in relation to EDs because we don't actually fully advise them if you are recovering. Yeah, yeah there are some asterisks in our recommendations. Um, and just to clarify, we're not going to be talking about numbers and not really weight. Sam, you've been mentioning it throughout the entire podcast. What is the low FODMAP diet? I have been waiting for you to ask me that question. This one goes out to all my IBS queens. Basically, these researchers in, Aus research <laughs> researchers in Australia um, developed the low FODMAP diet. Um, and basically, it's the idea that certain carbohydrates cause us to bloat and have these IBS symptoms. Um, and by reducing them or cutting them out of your diet temporarily, you're able to restore your microbiota so that you're able to eat these foods um, and not have such a severe reaction, or you're able to identify your trigger foods, um, and <laughs> then your symptoms will be less severe. And we're not just like pulling this out of our ass. Like there is a lot of <laughs> there is a lot of evidence that proves that low FODMAP is a good way to identify trigger foods and to help reduce bloating when you have IBS. Yeah, so FODMAP stands for fermentable oligosaccharides, disaccharides, monosaccharides, and polyols. Um, these are just different forms of carbohydrates, and then polyols are uh, sugar alcohols. So we're talking mannitol, we're talking sorbitol. No one knows what that means. All of the girls. <laughs> um, what? does that translate to? So like what sure. types of fruits and vegetables can we not eat? So it's interesting. The low FODMAP basically has um, two main phases. One, the elimination phase. So you cut out all high FODMAP foods. Um, and the thing that makes this especially tricky compared to like keto is it's not food groups, but you also have to be considerate about um, quantity by weight uh, because 14 blueberries is a low FODMAP serving of fruit, but a cup of blueberries would be high FODMAP. So you might not have these symptoms with a small quantity of blueberries, but you will with a large quantity. Um, and that also leads into the issue of stacking, where if you eat a lot of low FODMAP foods in one meal, the cumulative FODMAP you'll be ingesting sometimes can be enough to put you over that threshold where even though you've done everything right, you've done it wrong. And so what I get from that is this is like an extremely strict diet. Yeah. Uh, Having done it twice. Um, and I would also like to preface, I'm a nutrition major. I read books. I'm like very familiar with the field. And honestly, if I was to do this again, I would do it under the guidance of um, a highly specialized dietitian. It's really hard to do by yourself um, and really frustrating, especially when you're dealing with all of the issues that come with having these chronic GI problems. And another thing is like, also if you're 
of recovering from an ED, the idea, because oftentimes when you recover from an ED, you, as you introduce food and a normal eating schedule back into your life, your body kind of freaks out and you start getting um, GI problems, right? Oh, absolutely. I think having a history with restrictive eating is one of the um, exclusion criteria for consuming a low FODMAP diet, even if you're having, you know, moderate to severe IBS symptoms, um, because the risk associated with relapsing with an eating disorder is so much worse than being gassy and maybe constipated or diarrhea. Right. So like if you are recovering from an eating disorder, also seek out a dietitian. Seek out someone who's specialized. Um, I actually talked to one of my professors about this because it is so common that people with eating disorders, after either they've entered recovery or they've been experiencing it for a while, when they start reintroducing foods or even before that, their body doesn't digest the way it used to. Um, You're also at an increased risk of gastroparesis, which is like paralysis of the um, organs involved in digestion. Spoiler alert, it really sucks. I think another question I had for you is like, what what was a day-to-day life like when you were on a low FODMAP diet? Sure, so I, honestly, it starts before your day starts because you have to have foods in your pantry you can eat. Um, If you were to open my fridge right now, I would say at least half of the foods I have in there, you can't eat on a low FODMAP diet or you can eat them in really small quantities. So a lot of, we're, we're creatures of habit, like we eat similar meals all the time. And often like multiple components of those meals aren't compatible with a low FODMAP diet. And so having to restructure the way you think about food um, and plan your meals takes a lot of time and a lot of planning. Um, I, big meal prep person, and that I think was the thing that got me through, was being able to do these things in bulk and measure them out. But the con of that is it gets repetitive. And then (laughs) say you have a meal that's low FODMAP, but you still get symptoms because um, maybe of sensitivity to something that's not a FODMAP, like nightshades. Um, now you're stuck with all of this food you can't eat. For reference, what is a nightshade? <laughs> I feel like people, like when I think of low FODMAP, I had to look up the huge list of foods you could not eat. Um, and so, because I just like don't understand the sort of makeup of yeah, no, organisms. it's incredibly complicated. So how how much did you struggle figuring out which foods you could eat, which foods you couldn't eat, and did it eventually, like, you did figure it out where it did help you? I think, and this is why I recommend working with a dietitian, is they'll know. So not only are they able to craft meals and snacks for you that you can eat, but they'll also make sure you're reaching all of your nutritional goals, especially if you're someone who doesn't eat animal proteins, um, because beans and a lot of nuts are in very small quantities, like quantities small enough that you're not going to be able to glean an adequate amount of protein from them. Um, 
and a lot of protein powders are off the table because of the additives in them. So that adds a whole different layer of complexity to it. Um, but there were there was a time where like you can think about food and components. So like gluten-free crackers plus uh, certain kinds of cheeses. Um, and then I'm fairly certain there are some green foods, which technically you're allowed to eat in like infinite quantities, but not actually. Um, <laughs> and then also just having a bunch of small meals during the day instead of um, getting into that cycle of like feeling really bad after you eat and then delaying when your next meal is and then getting so hungry you'll just eat anything and overeating and then you feel really bad. <laughs> <laughs> That's really hard to break, and I have a lot of sympathy, but I think that's one of the biggest things um, is, like, small meals. Right. Keep it simple. Did you end up identifying any foods that actually cause your uh, IBS symptoms to flare up? Um, I'm, like, 90% sure corn is on the list, but... <laughs> Emily and I famously love popcorn. Yeah. Oh, my God, we do. We, like, down a bag and a half of it. So my new strategy <laughs> has been um, just taking, like, small portions of popcorn. Okay. And then, like, keeping the popcorn in, like, the basement. And I live on the second floor. Um, and that just helps me to eat a quantity that's, like, okay for my stomach. Um because I really love popcorn. No, that's valid. I think that's another thing is, like, I totally have friends who are lactose intolerant and still, like, casually eat milk or drink milk. Yeah, like, just because you identify your food triggers doesn't mean you're going to be able to cut them out of your life for one reason or the other. But it's just, it's good to know that that's where it's coming from so you can mentally prepare yourself for whatever. Especially if you have multiple food triggers. Because <laughs> say you're sensitive to, like, lactose, corn, and, um, I don't know, tomatoes, taco night might be a nightmare. Right. Um, and then I, you mentioned this too, but I want to bring it back up again. So I know, like, a lot of people, especially a lot of UMass people, shout out, um, are going vegan or vegetarian. One, because they're in the dining hall and those options are readily available to them. Or two, there is, you know, a lifestyle change to support, um, you know, fight the climate crisis and support sustainability, focusing on vegan and vegetarianism. Um, but once again, meat is really low, um, is low FODMAP, and it also does not cause as much bloating as, you know, veggies. And so if you see a correlation with that, you might be a person who either A, can't go completely vegan or vegetarian. I never want to say that like someone can't go vegan or vegetarian at the end of the day. I think that's a personal decision on like, am I willing and able to like spend my time and resources to make this like a balanced diet with things that are accessible to me, you know, cause not everyone has a whole foods where they live. <laughs> Um, and people famously say, like, rice and beans, easiest vegan meal you've ever heard of, but if you're sensitive to the oligosaccharides in beans, 
you can't just eat rice. Arguably worse for your health than like a more balanced meal that has meat. Right. Meat consumption and FODMAPs, because you'll notice that there are no animal products listed as FODMAPs, except for maybe like lactose. That's really easy to get rid of because that's a sugar. Um, you just need a little enzyme action. Um, and the reason for that is enzyme action. I'm not over the enzyme action. Um, how plants and animals get and store their energy because animals, we store our energy as glycogen. And then when they're slaughtered, that gets converted into lactic acid, science fact of the day. Um, plants famously store their sugars as these long chain carbohydrates in fiber and starches. Um, and they're also, you know, have a lot of water in them. And I think you were talking about this earlier where oftentimes people who eat a plant-based diet are consuming more volume because it's less calorically dense. Which then contributes to overeating or just having more mass in your stomach, which then can create bloating. And so, more fiber. Right. You know, because you can go the opposite end of the spectrum. Carnivore, devoid of fiber, you know, you might not poop for weeks. <laughs> <laughs> Sam and I, do you, have you ever gotten the app that, like, you could add your friends and it'll let you know where you've pooped and when you've pooped? BRB download. <laughs> it's like a big bonding thing if you're a freshman and you're looking to like break the ice, like you know, in the most dramatic way possible. Get the get the poop app. Have I ever Snapchatted you a picture of my poop? No, and I'm really glad. Actually, I FaceTimed Sam the other day <laughs> in some guy's bathroom because I was freaking out, and like she FaceTimes me and I answer it and I go, Sam, I'm pooping, and she was like, Great. <laughs> and that's on our friendship. I don't think you can talk about IBS and bloating without the subject of the microbiome, probiotics coming up. Yeah, so for a while, there was this health halo around probiotics. People were like, oh my God, like this is the new aspirin. <laughs> and more and more studies and especially like meta-analyses have come out and said, well, whoa, <laughs> like this might not be something you want to mess with. And it's really hard to formulate a probiotic that's effective because you have to figure out like, how are you getting this bacteria? By the time it reaches someone's intestines, are they going to be able to colonize? Are they even still alive? There's just a whole can of worms. And then it's like, who do you pick? How many do you put in there? And then it's an accessibility thing. They're not cheap. Um, famously, the refrigerated aisle in Whole Foods, I think is maybe the most expensive per like square foot yeah. in that entire store. Um, and, and then there's also like things can be labeled probiotics, but that doesn't mean you're actually getting the benefits of said probiotics. Um, something I learned really recently is kombucha does not actually like provide you the same probiotic benefits as I was led to believe like yogurt and kefir would. 
um, because it's different bacteria and there's it has different sugars in it and it works totally different with your body. I wrote a whole grant proposal on kombucha and antibiotic associated diarrhea, so we're gonna table that for later. Okay, fine, <laughs> whatever, whatever. Um, but yeah, and then there's what you were saying is there's a lot of misleading packaging. So like those gummy bears that label themselves as probiotics probably aren't doing that much for you. Also, if you're not a microbiologist, it's so confusing. There's so many different kinds of bacteria. What is a CFU? Um, it can get really overwhelming and then you're like, whatever, I give up, I'll just be sick. Um, <laughs> and so the conclusion that myself and a lot of people in the microbiome um, field have come to is if you're interested in probiotics, eat them in your food. So that's things like sauerkraut, doug, kefir, kimchi, tempeh, pickled red onions, all of the funky flavors, pickled red onions, my favorite thing. Okay, well, keep going. I don't know if pickled red onions would have it. Lacto They're definitely not. <laughs> Lacto-fermented pickles do. Okay. It depends on the way they're processed. Um, so probiotic foods and then also prebiotic foods. Um, so that's things like Jerusalem artichokes, garlic, fruits and vegetables, especially like cruciferous ones, things that are high in fiber. So that's like cabbage, kale. Okay. That family. Yeah. Um, what did you used to eat when, you know, you had to eat more probiotics in your foods? Well, so that's the interesting thing is you'll notice the list of foods that are prebiotics are also high in FODMAPs. Right. And so you come to this junction where you're like, which road do I take? Um, and the short answer is low FODMAP and then you start to reintroduce those foods. And that's why it's so important to work with a dietitian to reintroduce foods because you don't want to stay on the super restrictive FODMAP diet forever. First of all, your life's going to be really sad because you're not going to be able to go out to eat with friends. Um, second of all, you'll be missing out on key nutrients and diversity in your diet and all of these wonderful pre and probiotic foods. That just goes to show that like foods that are healthy might not be healthy for you where you are right now. I think that's our app. Okay, so follow us on Instagram at almost.healthy.podcast. Um, Sam and I are going to start posting regular content, regular reels. Uh, follow Sam's, as we mentioned. Extraordinary reels, not regular reels. <laughs> um, follow Sam's yoga Instagram. Plug in again. Oh, uh, yoga with Sam.b, all underscores. Uh, follow the Amherst Wire. Um, on Instagram, look out for some of the other amazing podcasts that are going to be coming out this week. We have the meme podcast. We have a sports podcast. We have Marked as Red that came out on Friday. So, um, yeah, stay tuned. All right. Bye, y'all. See you for part two.